everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the B2B Marketing Podcast. My name is David Romans. I'm your host for today's episode. Now, if you're familiar with the B2B Marketing Podcast, you'll know that I regularly speak to chief marketing officers, specialist marketers, VPs, it could be anyone, um, about any given area of B2B marketing. Um, and, you know, normally this is something like professional services. It might be manufacturing. Um, you know, it could be technology. It, it's all the, the classic things you might expect to hear from us. Um, but today I'm joined by one Richard Gillis, who is a sports author, journalist um, and host of sports business podcast called Unofficial Partner. And we're going to talk about all of those things, um, but also just about the medium of podcast generally, which I don't necessarily think always gets the most attention. Um, so without further ado, Richard, thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much, David. Thanks for, for the invite. Absolutely. Anytime. I was uh, I was just flicking through some of your um, some of your earlier podcasts and I was disappointed to hear that you are a Spurs fan. How do you respond to these allegations? <laughs> Guilty. Yeah, no, both me and Sean, who is, is my partner in uh, Unofficial Partner, the business, which uh, we're both, you know, he's more of a mad Spurs fan than I am. I'm a sort of, uh, you know, I do play up my Spurs fanishness, but uh, yeah, it's definitely there. Fair enough. Well, I'll, I'll try and avoid that at all costs. But um, before we sort of get into it, um, you know, can you perhaps just tell us a little bit about yourself and your and your podcast? Yeah. So um, we, I was a journalist, and I. This is now twenty odd years ago. I got a job. I was working for Channel Four Cricket, and I got a job uh, um, that was for a magazine called Sport Business, which I'd never heard of. And it was based in London. And I didn't know that I didn't really think about the business of sport at all, you know. And and within about sort of a year and a half, I was made editor of that magazine. And so I then became, you know, from there, I got to know loads of people in the business of sport on, on all sides. And that's always been quite a useful sort of shtick, a little bit of a niche which is quite useful and valuable. And as the thing has grown, I mean, it's at that time, it was always a bit of a sort of, you know, it was a small side issue. And now obviously sport and money is a massive, you know, question. And it's, it's runs you know, quite often. The news is more about the business rather than about the actual sport itself. So it's grown. I always see it as a bit like, the film industry. I used to read quite a lot of those film books, you know, William Goldman books, or that that were about the film industry and about behind the scenes and the production of it and the how you know just the the deals that get done and how it really works. And I was sort of interested in that. And I always liked sport, and uh, I thought of myself as quite an informed sort of uh, person on sport. Obviously, I was having been a sports journalist but really it sort of opened a bit of a door and I suddenly realized oh okay well this is how things work and there's buy people buying and selling on both sides it's just a market like anything else and that's that's that was the sort of genesis of the business bit and then over time I started both working as a uh, I was a journalist for working for things like the FT and Wall Street Journal and the Observer talking about the business of and then um, I started getting work running into 20 London 2012 I started getting consulting work from the other side of the fence. So it was mainly sort of uh, sponsorship sort of uh, in, and comms sort of strategic type work. And then I sort of backed myself into a job, which was at Havas, which is a sort of, you know, obviously, as you know, a major advertising agency. 
and worked there for a, for a few years. And then, like, just to bring us up to date, a couple about three years ago, me and um, Sean, who uh, is my business partner and but an old mate, we were in the pub and said, you know, shall we try and do something ourselves? And uh, it ended up being podcasts and you know and, and about the business of sport and that was the sort of the growth of uh, or that was the start of uh, unofficial partner mm, it's a great history there and you know, has the growth in sport really kind of surprised you over the last 20 years i mean i just think you know from a football fan's perspective when um some not everyone will understand this reference obviously but when neymar went to uh, psg for whatever it was 200 million which was you know we were worlds away from that in the 90s have, have, you, have you really seen that industry explode do you think yeah, I mean, it is all money. You know, that's the that's the sort of root of it, and the money has just gone up. You know, and it's it's quite often become the sort of almost cliche that you hook that around, say, the Premier League in the early nineties, Murdoch, Sky, paying. You know, the football in the UK went from you know not being paid a rights fee to suddenly making tens of millions, and now it's billions, and it's grown hugely and it's driven by all sorts of factors mainly competition in the media market you know and and that continues to to happen so the price tag continues to rise and as more and more people become involved and and follow the money into sport then more and more different types of industries who are now in you know tech and private equity businesses and they're all looking at investing in sport in a way that 10 15 years ago it was sort of mobile networks and they were on the shirts of football clubs and o2 and vodafone and and all of that evolves and sport has been very good at sort of just capturing the next industry if you like and to to and it's been very good at turning that into into money mm. do you find then that the the b2b sport market is getting bigger not just in the sense of the amount of money that's in it but you're getting new entire industries get involved in it I mean like one thing we're seeing lately is um you know I, I don't know if it's is it VR cameras within stadiums you're seeing all these kind of new technologies are you finding that yourself you know tons more industries all kind of gathering in b2b sport yeah I think what happens is that um sport is really good at uh amplifying or or promoting something in front and generalizing something normalizing something so it's 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 a way of if you take betting or if you take something like mobile video and mobile phone now without sport that's a bit of a sort of application you know it's a technology looking for an application but when you then add sport into it it becomes something you know it moves to a sort of must have and it, it educates whole generations of people on how to use technology and we're seeing, you know, we'll see it when we move to things like blockchain and Web3 and the metaverse. And so sport will be involved in that and it will take a, you know, take rent in the form of a rights fees and license fees. And um, that's the sort of nuts and bolts of it. And that that has driven the sports economy. And so you've got things like, you know, sports sponsorship, which again is a, from a, you know, B2B marketing perspective, that's the engine of a lot of sport you know, which is money that's coming from brands. And uh, they're doing that because they know it's a quick way of finding a mass audience. You know, we're seeing it at the moment with things like Cinch, 
which is, a, you know, you've got to spend a lot of money on advertising to get the sort of exposure you can get from a Premier League football match. Mm. It's interesting as well. I mean, one thing I read the other day was in the conference world, which is obviously a little less exciting than, uh, you know, large scale finals in Wimbledon yeah, or whatever it might telling be. Me. <laughs> but in fact, well, I don't say that, you know, we run our own conferences. We're not really <laughs> hurt by that. But, um, you know, one thing we have seen is that we're seeing these conferences actually trying to learn from the likes of sport, because one thing that sports done really well for, for decades even is create two experiences for customers or you know, fans. Customers sounds a bit dry, doesn't it? So you've got people in the stadium who are obviously there and they're getting one experience watching the live rugby match, whatever it is. But then you've also got this whole other separate audience at home watching on TV or on their iPad or whatever it might be. And we're, we're seeing now that as we're creating hybrid events for this kind of post-COVID world, in some instances, people are actually trying to recreate that kind of experience, that kind of, you know, you've got one experience of people in the, in the venue, but you've got another experience of people from home. Do you think sport can really lead the way there? There's a, there's a sort of a, a constant debate almost between whether sport leads anything or follows everything else. And so it's, you go around in circles, but um, certainly there is a, uh, an op- the, the question at the moment over the last five years more, which has been posed by the sort of digital era has been, how a football club, a cricket club, a you know the IOC, whatever it is, what all, the organisation, going direct to their fan base, and so, and that's comes with all sorts of questions that every marketing person is familiar with in terms of you know well how do we do it on a technical basis, how do we do it from a cultural perspective, it changes the nature of the organisation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But that that sort of utopian dream almost of a sort of one-to-one relationship with, you know, the fan is a question that is sort of whether or not there's a, uh, there at the, uh, the ability of, of football, say let's take a football club to do that is limited by its profile is enormous, but actually these are relatively small businesses when you put them against, you know, the Tesco's or Coca-Cola's of this world, they're tiny um, organizations by revenue and by, you know, staff. So it's going to be, it's very difficult to work out how they go about doing that. But certainly, you know, your point about two audiences, if you remember the Super League, if people remember the, you know, the breakaway Super League story of last year, Mm -hmm. that was all, you know, it wasn't all about this, but it was a, a central part of it was that those clubs, so from Barcelona, Real Madrid, Man United, Man City, who all signed up to this, they know that there is enormous international audience who never come near the stadium. And, you know, the numbers that get banded around is, you know, whatever the percentage, 90% of people who are a Man United fan never go to the stadium. I think it's probably higher than that. So the question then becomes, how do you interact with those people? And ultimately it's a business. So how do they make money from those people? And you then get to a definition, you know, what is the definition of a fan? What what does that mean? So is it someone like Sean, who is almost a sort of maniacal sort of uh, um, supporter of Spurs and will go to, you know, his season ticket holder? He's obviously a fan if you, you know, but 
if you then go and it's always the sort of cliche is the Chinese fan or the Brazilian fan. And you mentioned Neymar at the beginning. One of the, again, the influential stats, which gets banded about is that, you know, when Neymar went from Barcelona to PSG, a lot, he took a large chunk of fans with him. So they weren't supporting Barcelona. Mm. They were actually supporting Neymar. Now, I think there's some truth in that, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a simplistic argument, but you get the point that actually sport is wrestling with those issues on a sort of grand scale. And there's always this sense of their how to capitalize on this enormous fame that these football clubs have particularly. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's, you can see that from it, if you are the short term head of marketing or head of commercial for a Premier League or a, um, a big Italian side, it's really annoying because you can't work out how to make money other than sell sponsorship. So they will then, you know, they will monetize those fans on the basis that, look, look, we've got so many followers on social media. We've got a big fan base. If you are on our shirt or if you sponsor our stadium or whatever, you will access that fan base, which is an iffy proposition, but it seems to work on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah. One thing you mentioned there that is really interesting, I think, is the Super League. And for any non football fans listening, I'll give you a very top line overview with my own bias, obviously, um, which is basically you had the, the richest clubs in Europe and they wanted to break away and create their own closed league, if you like. And as I understand it, I might be slightly off the money here, but basically it was about them making more money. They're were, they were sharing the wealth between themselves and keeping it out of smaller clubs across Europe. Now that financially obviously made sense, hence why they, they wanted to do it. Um, but I think it's fair to say it was an absolute brand nightmare. Um, you know, the, the backlash on TV was unbelievable. I mean, I remember seeing um, Sky Sports. It was like 24-7 rolling coverage almost. In, in many ways, it was sort of a case study in, in bad PR. Um, what do you think that the average marketer can learn from that? You know, obviously, it's not always going to be the same scale as something like that. Um, and perhaps not even as emotional because something like sport is very... Uh, well, yeah, very emotional. Um, but yeah, what do you think the average marketer can learn from a, from a PR disaster like that? I think don't take your customers for granted is the was the main thing. One of the problems where there isn't much marketing done, long-term strategic marketing done in sport. And, you know, a lot of it is very sales-driven. It's very um, deal-driven. It's short-termist. And so... It's difficult once you start to get to, okay, the Super League question. Um, they've never really had to think about their fans in that in that way because the media money has just they've been hosed in media money. So if all you're doing is selling a B two B license to a broadcaster, you're essentially and getting you know millions and millions back for that. Or if you're selling, someone's going to give you fifty million for your shirt a year, which is the sort of go, you know what. Man United have sold to TeamViewer, for example, then the idea of building a one-to-one sort of, you know, digital platform and network, it just is, you don't really need to worry too much because always, again, they will come anyway. So your other sort of uh, guests on this podcast have to worry about the competition and they have to say, if we do this, we're going to lose, you know, 
Apple or Lou is out to Samsung or Coke to Pepsi or whatever, you know, all the way down the the uh, the um, the ladder. Spurs don't need to worry about that, you know, and they've all it's it's a they're going to be turning up anyway. So there isn't, I would argue, the sort of fundamental incentive that is at the heart of strategic marketing, which is how to take care of the customer because the customer will be there even if you you know treat them badly and traditionally they have been treated badly yeah i mean it's interesting you say that because I, I can understand that you know i mean I, as a as a liverpool fan and a as a welsh rugby fan i'm never going to support another team just because we're doing badly or to really break it down into sort of business terms because i'm not getting value from that relationship um but i think there are some companies out there in a b2b context that they might actually have that kind of sway. I mean, the, the classic um, phrase that everyone used to throw around was, you know, no one ever got fired for buying ABM. Uh, ABM? IBM, my mistake. Um, so do you think that there are some organisations that have that attitude of we're so big, nothing could possibly go wrong? Or am I being a little bit negative there? I'm sure you're right. I mean, I, I think there, there there is a, you know, the scale of, of organisations and, you know, whether it's... Uh, the they've got a distinct advantage or a, you know a, a basic strategic advantage over the competition they've built a moat whatever the you know to use the fashionable term that they are then uh so something like amazon apple these are all organized companies who can claim enormous customer bases now, whether the same relationship, whether it's the same relationship as yours with Liverpool or yours with Wales, I think is deeply questionable. And I think I always hesitate, you know, when brand or advertising people, and I've worked at an advertising agency, when they start talking about brand loyalty, brand love, I wince because I don't think it's the same thing at all. And they think that, you know, the dedication, you can you can make the data tell you any story you like. And it, it's, if you fall in love with the idea that your customers are deeply loyal to you because of your sheer brilliance. That is the route to the Super League. Mm. Do you think that some brands, and it, it might just be a B2C thing here, but some brands are capable of building that because, I don't know, I'm trying, thinking of an example, uh, Adidas. If I'm going to buy a pair of trainers, I know myself, I know I'm going to go for Adidas. And... You know, I don't wake up in the morning thinking, oh, God, I love Adidas. Another another day, another pet, you know, another three striped bit of clothing. But there is definitely something in that, in that I have a some form of emotional connection. Like if I want to buy a pair of football boots, I'll, I'll get Adidas. Is there is there no reason that B2B can't do that? I would say so. If you I'm a, I'm, I'm a bit of a fan of Byron Sharp, and I think that. His explanation for that, I, I've got some time for, which is that Adidas is both mentally and physically available to you. So they have spent billions and billions and billions on getting in front and being in your head. So at the moment when you are about to buy and want, you know, the, the purchase decision moment, it has to be physically available as well. So they have they are there online, they're there in the shops, they're everywhere. It's the same, you know, so that's very sophisticated it takes an enormous amount of money to do that now if you were to transfer that into a b2b 
environment. And you've got a whole emotional connection, it sounds like, to Adidas for some reason. I don't know what that would be, whether it's you've always worn it and we've all got, you know, I'm sitting here, I've got, I'm wearing Stan Smith myself. So, you know, but that's been built. That's a relationship that's been built for, for decades. And yes, I'm sure that the quality of product, brand, all of these things talk to those decisions. Um, I'm not sure, though, that it's the that the sport analogy holds. I think it's a different fundamental relationship. Mm. Yeah, I, t- I take your point. I mean, I, it's almost a, a religious experience, a sports one in a way. And it doesn't matter how, I mean, look at, uh, if there's any Newcastle fans listening, I'm sorry, but you know, you take the average Newcastle fan, it just seems to be one blow after another for decades, but they still turn up. So yeah, presumably you're not going to get that in B2B. Um, just moving on and, and going back to the uh, your, your own official podcast quickly, what do you think are some of the most interesting episodes you've recorded from the perspective of a, of a B2B marketer? Um. So we do, I mean, as you can imagine, we do a lot with sponsors. So the people who are sort of putting the trigger on big sponsorship decisions. So things like Coca-Cola, we've had Adidas on, we've had, you know, lots of different major brands. So it's always interesting to sort of delve into that decision-making process. There is uh, one I really like is Dr. And Augustine Fu. FOU, and he is an expert, a global expert in digital advertising fraud, and is brilliant at the games that are being played in terms of the claims made for digital engagement and digital reach. Um, and uh, you know, if you talk to him for half an hour, you your your sort of mind gets changed on a range of issues there is a uh the agencies we've had quite a lot on so we we do we did a series with um uh omnicom who and fuse is their sort of sports marketing shop and that again is looking at the price of sponsorship in relation to TV advertising spots for example so again which is a bit of an indicator in terms of Right at the beginning, we said, you know, sport is very good at doing certain jobs for marketers. And one of them is to to make, create fame quickly. And it's relative, you know, in, in the, when you look at the arguments for, okay, well, do we spend whatever it is, 20 million quid or 50 million quid on a Champions League partnership, you know, of which there are only six. And that is that a good piece of business compared to a global advertising campaign or another way of reaching your customers, you know, via digital means, for example. So all of that bit of the conversation is, you know, takes up a chunk of time and that, which is directly relevant in terms of, you know, B2B marketing, because essentially that's what it is. Um, I personally quite like the sort of the history bits we've had, you know, people on who have done deals in the past and uh, around, it's, you know, Adidas are hugely influential in this going back to the sort of 60s and 70s um, and their relationship with FIFA and and the IOC. Um, but yeah, so it's that sort of, you know, it, it, we cover a very broad sort of spectrum. So uh, I would, yeah, I mean, if anyone's interested, have a listen. Fascinating stuff. Um, you mentioned there about advertising and in sports and 
you know, the perceived value for businesses. I mean, it feels like in B2B, we're, we're always talking about marketing getting more tailored, more targeted, you know, finding out exactly who your customer is and, you know, aiming all your efforts right at that individual. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of benefits to do with that. Um, you know, presumably you're, you're wasting less budget, you're, you're spending money in the right ways and the right places. But you turn on any major sports event on TV and it's still plastered with, with major brands, B2C and B2B. You know, you take uh, Wimbledon, for instance, it's Rolex everywhere. You take, um, you take Man United, it's team viewer. You know, the, the examples are endless. Do you think that there really is value to be had from B2B organisations in those places? Because from my point of view, if I'm watching the Champions League final, I'm not sure I'm associating those banks or whatever it might be on the uh, on the sponsorship boards on the side. I'm not sure I'm taking that in in any way, but I, d- I don't know. Perhaps I'm I'm naive to my to my own behaviour. Um, I think so. When you look at so the absolute top of the market, so the the Olympics and the IOC. So I think I'm right in saying that the majority of top partners, which is the sort of Uber category of of sponsors, the majority are B2B brands. Um, I think that's sort of happened over the last few years. And I think that one of the, um, one of the reasons for that is that it does quite a few different jobs as well as the brand part that is visible to us on telly. And in, in fact, at the Olympics, you don't get any brand appearance at all you know so it's a clean stadium but so it's probably a duff example but you've got you've got an example there where actually they're buying an association with the sport and the olympics and olympism and the ioc and then they're using their own marketing uh function to drive that through their uh their whole sort of funnel if you like so that's i think that's telling us that there is something is working there and it is useful as a way of, of just, it could be a differentiation problem that they have, or it could be a way of, of re, you know, a, a, a targeting question, or it could be a sort of brand association issue that they want to be seen quite often. Companies want to be seen in the company of the other sponsors and in the company of big glossy superstars and, and the rest. So, it gives their image a boost. Visa is a good example of a company that, you know, is essentially a B2B company, but it spends enormous amounts in sport. And we're, we're talking now and it's, you know, the UEFA Women's Euros is on in the UK and Visa are supporting their sponsorship of that with a big ad campaign because they want to associate themselves. Now, part of that is a brand purpose campaign so they're saying look look at us we're supporting women's sport aren't we generous and there is a you know within sport sponsorship there is a uh, a signaling strategy going on there as well so you mentioned there about the rush to to one to one relationships quite often like a big tv ad campaign or a, a global sponsorship or a sponsorship of sport comes with a load of power signals that are in you know essentially difficult to measure or more difficult to measure but it's you mentioned waste one of the questions 
you know, the old cliche of, you know, I know how much advertising I'm spending or how much I'm wasting. The waste is actually valuable because you're sort of, it's, there is a, um, just an impact that the brand can have on the big stage, which you struggle to have when you are engaging sort of at the bottom of the funnel on a one-to-one basis. So is it, there's that question. And as TV advertising declines in terms of the reach, that idea that everyone is seeing the same thing at the same time, which again comes with lots of useful uh, connotations for a brand, it's sport is one of the few that will still can still guarantee that in large numbers. And that's mm-hmm. why even on a B2B level, they still see that that's a very valuable sort of commodity. Yeah. I might be being cynical, but do you think that, just to bring it back, actually, something you mentioned was brand purpose there. Do you think that it's important that companies who do sponsor a sports event or a sports team or whatever it might be, that they have some actual real connection either to the event or to the idea that they're trying to support through their sponsorship of that event? Because I remember about 10 years ago, you would have, you know, McDonald's sponsoring, uh, I don't know if it was the Premier League, but, you know, there'd be adverts for uh, McChickens before major sports events and things of that that sort of ilk, which obviously feels very kind of insincere. I don't think anyone is expecting uh, Cristiano Ronaldo to be wolfing down a 99p chicken legend before a Champions League final. But nowadays it feels like companies that do sponsor major sports events, it's more deliberate and they've become a bit more mature in that respect. Do you think that's fair? Uh, I think some do. I think there's a, you, you can't get away from some of it is just, we want to reach a massive number of people and there, you know, it's, it, it might not go much further than that. There is a, um, so fast food, Coca-Cola beer is another example. They will always come under the cosh for that issue, you know, obesity, et cetera, and which is, and that, you know, you get into a, a sort of circular debate, really, about that, which is it gets boring quite quickly, although it's important. Um, I think there's a, with, um, in terms of the brand purpose thing, it is, I was looking the other day at the Can Lions for Sport, which is sort of, is a relatively recent mm. initiative, so it's the last few years. And it ain't much fun, you know, looking at some of those campaigns. They're very dull and very worthy, quite earnest. And so my argument is that that purpose is quite difficult, or if not impossible, to be entertaining and put purpose at the centre of the of the strategic sort of um, the, the the brand strategy. So it's quite from that perspective, purpose. I get irked by purpose campaigns. The other bit that annoys me is that there are there are companies out there doing really brilliant things fundamental things and really believe in what they're doing but there's a whole load of greenwashing sports washing gay washing that takes place that just muddies the water for everyone else everyone becomes cynical and they are you know spoiling it for the for the decent brands it's very difficult sometimes to to tell the difference Mm, yeah, yeah absolutely and um just want to talk a little bit about your book, uh, Captain Myth. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what that's about and, and some of the key learnings from it? Um, it started out with, this is, we're going back a bit now, but so it, it was the Ryder Cup. I was a, 
it's about the Ryder Cup captain. And I used that as a way to talk about leadership in sport. And the reason it's called the captain myth is that essentially what happens at the Ryder Cup is that you either win or you lose. So there are two types of captain. There is a good captain and a bad captain. And it becomes a story, like a myth. It connects to that person. And it happens straight away. It can, ha- you know, it can happen within the, the Ryder Cup is just 12 golfers playing over three days, but then they can win by a shot here and there. So the margins are tiny. Now, you then get this problem of, of attribution error and we attribute all the, the winning to the winning captain's decisions. And there is a halo that goes over the winning captain. And then there is a negative halo that goes over the losing captain. And we then we then look in and go further because we're curious about this. And you can see this in the in the, you know, in journalism and in uh, the way people talk about leadership generally is that we just uh, say, right, OK, whatever that person did, all of the decisions that they made must also have been the right ones because it's very hard to argue otherwise. Mm. And. So you you can't have a bad captain who won and you can't have a good captain that loses because those two, those stories don't cohere. And one of the problems that we get to is explaining why something has happened. So journalism has got itself into trouble because it used to be about what happened, what, where, when. So factual information that is reported the problem with that is that that's not enough. And we are now moved to, well, why did that happen? Why are Spurs beating Liverpool this last weekend? And that's a much more difficult, complex question and one that is probably beyond the people who are reporting on it in most cases. And so it that was the nub of the, the thing. And that's that was the sort of the route into the book. And uh, so the book then became... Something the, the the title of the book got me into trouble because it, people think I'm I'm I don't believe in leadership or I think leadership doesn't exist, which isn't true. But I can see why people get to that um, that uh, evaluation. But there's a when you see leadership, you know it's 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 real. It does have an impact. It's one of many factors in performance. But trying to link it, we we sort of hugely overestimate the uh, the impact of leadership in most situations. Mm. Do you think, though, that I'm trying to word this correctly before I before I ramble for for ten minutes? Do you think that it's it's easier to associate um, a, a loss, let's say, in, in you know your team in the Ryder Cup with a bad captain, as you say, because it's such a what's the word? Not emotional, but anything can happen in sport. There's this, there's this element of chance. You know, you're playing football, the ball hits a tiny patch of grass, it bounces slightly off, and then that's the difference between a goal or, or not a goal. But when it comes to business, there's maybe I'm being unfair in saying this, I feel like there's more control you have in those decisions. Decisions are more based around data and facts. It, there's not that same element of the wind was slightly off on that putt or something along those lines. So do you think that same myth translates to business, or, or do you think it's slightly different yeah i think it does translate i think the problem with the data argument and obviously data is useful in certain situations it's never perfect 
the other problem is that people assume it's science that it's a you know that it's um it's it proves and can repeat so if you do one thing today and you do exactly the same thing tomorrow you might get a different result but the data would suggest that that's the route that you would follow so we get into a narrative fallacy get pulled along by stories and the, the captain the good captain or the good manager the good leader the good ceo all and the good prime minister the good president all of these are characters and stories that we need to believe in one way or the other and we we agree or disagree but essentially it's it's if you look at we became obsessed with leaders in in the sort of probably from the 70s and 80s and it became a function of of the way in which we started talking about business because it's a simple story businesses are really complicated and messy and full of inconsistencies and it's hugely relative to what's going on outside of the business and what you do as a leader today. It could be impacted on, you know, by a, a rival business doing better tomorrow. So all of that we know is a huge stew of different causes and effects. And the leader just gives us a really easy, simple story to follow and to, to champion. And that's why we elect the people we do. I think it's, I think it's why we, you know, when you look at business channels on, uh, you know, on cable telly, but you're everywhere, the elevation of the CEO is a relatively new thing. It didn't used to be that sort of cult of leadership. It's only, you know, people like Jack Welsh in the sort of 90s around um, GEC, they were there when enormous success happened. And so there was a, a you know, a, a halo over their actions, all their decisions. It's a lot of books have been read, have written and read, claiming that they have some insight into how you can build an excellent business or grow a business or or which have found over time just to be too short term. The lens is too short term. It's giving uh, too much uh, credit and blame to individual performance. Mm. What do you think good leadership looks like in business, though? I think it can look like virtually anything. I don't think there is a formula. I don't think there is a, as soon as you ask that question, you are asking me to create a caricature of a leader. And that's, that's a problem. It can, can come from anywhere. It can be, there can be one fantastic charismatic leader who genuinely changes the culture of an organization that, and drags people from one place to another. I think it can also come from within you know, we are obsessed with hierarchy still. I remember talking to um, Gary Hamill, who's a London business professor. And he said that the people building the pyramids would recognize our businesses today. You know, they are essentially, it's people at the bottom and a few people at the top making decisions and all just going fed downwards. Um, it's not, that's not a complete picture, but that's still the case in many people's working lives. So it's 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 difficult to organise people at scale, and once you start to, you might say, okay, well, th that person is incredibly democratic. They're devolving responsibility. They're doing, it. and if, if it goes wrong, they'll be called weak. You know, mm -hmm. so it's it's a there. It's a it's a fascinating topic. There is a whole industry which has grown. You know, it's a they'll put a number on it, but it's it's 
hundreds of billions across sport is just one tiny bit of it across the military, across government, across business, academia that have grown the the, in, the sort of industrial uh, uh, sector, leadership sector, and it's it's a it's just a cult that is is endlessly revived by the next generation of people that come along. We're seeing it on in Silicon Valley, you know. We pour enormous. There's a. There's a. We pour enormous credit and and uh, uh, riches on the people at the top of an organisation when it's doing well, and then suddenly they turn around and they've got no clothes. And mm. it's 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 a it's an endless cycle. There's no great answer to it. I don't think it's just human life. Yeah. No. It's, it's a great it's a great answer, and I think you're right. I think to say a good leader is X, Y, and Z is just not. It's, it's just probably not relevant. You know, what makes a good leader in one business is going to be totally different from another. Um, but moving on, one thing I want to talk about in particular is is podcasts generally, because um, obviously I host a podcast, you host a podcast. Um, and we're seeing that, you know, more and more marketers and organisations are setting up their own. Um, obviously, it's just a great channel to communicate with people, especially as people are, you know, walking to the shops or just making their breakfast. It's, it's a bit more easily digestible, I think, than um, pouring over a... 10,000 word report, although we do love those at B2B marketing, of course. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, some people hopefully do. What do you think is the the key to a good podcast though? Do you think it's just about the guest and their rapport or do you think there's there's actionable things people can do to really make them stand out? Uh, I think formats is important. I think there is something, some things just work really well i'm really obsessed with formats i like to look and see what's working what isn't just generally you know across um i think one of the underrated bits actually about think people like sort of youtube creators and influencers so-called are their creativity around formats i think that's interesting and there is a um something about podcasts which is it's easier to get to a more sort of human conversation um, than say a conference, because I think I find conferences can be very boring. People, it's almost forcing them to be boring. They've, they're standing on stage with a badge and their company, it weighs very heavily on them. They're performing in front of an audience. So they're not completely relaxed. You've got to be a very extrovert type of character to, to do well in that environment. And quite often people, are not that and so they're not practiced in that way and then you know that becomes a problem when you're trying to create entertaining sort of uh, content so you've got a whole range of reasons why podcasts work really well just you know audience behavior is is a uh, significant one in terms of the the why it works i think there is an element of trust we want to learn something from a particular podcast that's why we go back i'm in my own behavior is is there are a load of different things i see i think oh i'd quite like to look you know what listen to that but relatively few i stick to and quite often it's to do with the host or just the types of conversation that they have and it's there's a bit of this there's i think underrated in it is the sort of level of comfort as well you know you're in when you're in people's ears it's you don't you know i personally don't want like a zoo of people like a sort of old radio one breakfast show type 
thing, showing my age. But it's that that just find really irritating. And the whole point of podcasts, initially at least, were that you could listen to people who knew what they were talking about over a you know a longer period of time, rather than it being intersected constantly, changing to try and to sort of jazz up the uh, uh, the presentation. So I quite like that, and so that's the sort of ones that we do. I think. Mm. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, th- I think I. I- well, not I think, I definitely do agree with the point about having multiple people on a podcast. I've heard of myself and there's, you know, there's maybe five people on it because you've got the host, then you've got, you know, the main person, um, quite often in the B2B context, you know, oh, we want to bring a client on board and then we have this other expert. And it doesn't seem like a lot of people because, you know, four people in a room is not really, is it? But you're right, when it's in your ear and you're going on a run or you're going to the gym or whatever, it just becomes this, this, noise with no space and you almost can't help it you know you can't even hear yourself think it feels like do do you agree with that you think yeah i think there's a you know a lot of i think an under an underrated part of it is actually what it listens it sounds like at the other end you know it's relatively easy to start a podcast with technically and people just think it's just okay well let's just get chatting but there is some even in a in a one-to-one environment um there is some structure there is you know there is a skill to being an interviewer which i think people want you to ask the questions that they would ask and so i think one of the things that i think we do well is that we we know who the audience is because you can do that and one of the advantages of b2b and you know a a niche like sport is that you sort of get a feel for the sorts of subjects that they want to be talking about, the sort of questions that they would ask. And I think it's important that you ask them. And so it doesn't, you know, it's not some PR con job where people are just sort of selling stuff, which is tedious. And, you know, we always say it's just in no one's interest to make boring podcasts. So um, we try not to. Mm. Do you find that in that case, you're, you're often a bit like an interpreter for the audience. Because I can imagine if you're speaking to someone who's got really great expertise on a certain subject, but it might be on the more technical side of things. Is that something difficult to to manage with your audience? I think if you sort of, I don't go any further than thinking, am I interested in this? And if I'm not, then the chances are other people aren't either. And, you know, there is a limit to that, you know, in terms of, trying to sort of second guess things. And I think you can go mad trying to get in the head of, you know, what is now a lot of people listening. So I think if you sort of comes back to, well, is this person interesting? What do I really, what do I want to know? There's always something that's interesting about a topic, however sort of obscure. Um, And it's, it's, I think people respond to that. I think that what they hate is, stuff they've heard a thousand times before, just sort of boring old cliches, people who sort of try and bullshit and people try and sell stuff in a really sort of obvious way. Everyone's selling, you know, no one, it's it's an obvious thing to say, but it's just if it's done in a way that is disrespectful, you know, Mm. I just, I get irritated. Yeah. There's a way of selling something where you're just giving your honest opinion. And if it works someone and they're interested, great. But there's another way of selling where you're you're almost treating your audience like an idiot. 
and you, you're using it as sales pitch. And I think people have, well, I don't, I don't think they've cottoned on. I think they were always cottoned on in the first place, to be honest. Um, one thing you mentioned earlier, though, you, you mentioned about the, the format in a podcast. And typically, I would say, you know, most podcasts I listen to, whether it's a sport podcast, a you know, business one, whatever it is, the format is pretty much what we're doing right now. You know, there's a, there's a little intro spiel, you know, welcome to the podcast, we'll speak to X, Y, Z. And then it's just an open conversation. But do you think there's an opportunity for more creative formats? And, you know, stuff maybe you've seen, maybe you haven't, but you thought was a good idea. Anything that you think would help someone doing a podcast stand out a bit? Yeah, I think there's... I mean, I think there's a load of things. I think there's a... Time is one. The short form might be an area that grows. I was, I, I don't think it's quite there yet, but uh, if you can do, there is so one interesting format I saw the other day for the first time was, so Tortoise, which is the news sort of startup, they do a an editor's voicemail. So it's basically just one person. It's almost like they're leaving you a voicemail, a voice message. I think it was quite a cute idea. Now, whether I enjoy it to the extent that I'm going to go back and get it again. It just depends on what they're saying, but there is a, it could be done in a way that, that, that would work, you know, that, so that would be a direct to just someone talking to you about the latest issue. Um, short form news updates. There was a, there's a whole area of the sort of clubhouse Twitter spaces thing, which I think, Again, when I looked at initially, I thought, oh, well, that's something we should keep an eye on quite closely. And we still do, but we didn't. I thought I thought Clubhouse would be better than it was. I was I was wrong about that. It's it's almost insufferable to listen to. But it, and I think it's it's but it will evolve, I, I think, or that uh, something like that will evolve. Um then you've got the sort of as a, you know, things like, you know, the obvious one being Desert Island Disc being the, you know, much talked about as the perfect format. And there is a, there is some benefit to doing that. Formats quite often become a sort of prison, you know, you, if they're not desert island discs, you create something and then it just gets in the way and is just an irritation and you, you sort of end up doing away with it. But if you can find one that works, um, I've, there's some there's some good ones around that, you know three things I've learned or that, you know, again, putting that sort of structure on a conversation, basically the same thing, but it's a, it allows you to, to sort of market it differently or to, to approach it slightly differently. And it gives a structure, which again, some, some listeners want more structure. They don't want, you know, a ramble. Mm. Some people love it. So yeah. <laughs> can't win. Um, we're just sort of, closing you know coming to the close of the podcast now so it's got a couple more questions i wanted to ask you do you think there's more opportunity for sponsored podcasts in b2b because i know you know whenever i'm listening to my own like you know personal free time podcasts quite often in fact more often than not you know it will say you're brought to you by xyz or there's a there's an advert halfway something along those lines but it's never something i've ever heard i don't think in a b2b podcast now that could just be the ones i'm listening to because in all honesty, I'm not listening to a hundred different ones. I'm listening to a handful at most. Um, but just anecdotally, it feels like a bit of an obvious opportunity that might be being missed. Do, do you agree? Do you disagree? Yeah, I mean, we do them. We do sponsored podcasts. We do um, 
we sell sort of advertising inventory within the podcast, but we also, um, what works better, I think, is there is a, we're selling essentially, we're creating IP for, you know, if it's around a series, because sport is so, you know, so many different bits to it, subject-wise, so many themes, that we we create sort of co, um, co-owned podcast series, which is fancy. It's a sponsorship, but it gives the sponsor a bit more of a uh, sense of ownership, but also there it allows us to access better guests than, you know, our, my contact book will allow. So um, everyone, if we, so we've got one that we run with uh, Portus Consulting, who are a specialist sort of sponsorship consultancy, very sort of well-renowned within sport. Now they do a series, we call it Rethinking Sport, and they have brought a whole load of very top-ranking clients or just people that are in their world that we wouldn't have got a hold of or we wouldn't have known about. And it works quite nicely. So from that perspective, and they they then get, we do events or we do private room sort of uh, sort of networking events or we do live podcast recordings. So all of that from a from a B2B perspective is is incredibly useful. I think that one of the things that podcasts do again well is create IP quickly and easily. So you don't you're not creating a conference or a magazine or you know which has got a lot of moving parts and a high cost. You're you're sense testing demand quite quickly and you can see quickly whether something takes or not. And then you've also got it's a nice phone call for a sponsor to make if you're inviting a guest on. So if you are and I've worked at an agency where it's quite, you know, it's nice to have a good reason to ring up the client or to ring up a prospect or ring up someone uh, relatively well known in the sports industry that has nothing to do with you, but just say, look, we've got this thing. Would you like to come on? And 99% of the time they say yes, because they want, you know, they, uh, they know who we are and, and they know that it's proper, you know, it's not, um, it's not going to be crap. So that works really well as a sponsorship asset in addition to the sort of quite often the other bit where you get into from a b2b perspective is that you get that whole in the dreaded phrase thought leadership but it's quite a i think a podcast is a really good way of communicating a sort of quickly a positioning or a, a just a sense of expertise to an audience and i think that um, that's worth paying for in some situations. So that's that's how we view it. Absolutely. And uh, my my absolute final question for you, and then I shall let you go. Um, who's on your wish list for an official partner? Um, it tends to be people who are not in sport. Uh, we you know we obviously cover a lot of people who are in in and around sport, and so I. One person I'm quite keen to get on, I've interviewed in the past, but not as a podcast, is Malcolm Gladwell. And he's he's interested in sport and he's got his own podcast business, obviously, which I think is very good. And so, you know, I'm in a long line of people waiting to talk to Malcolm Gladwell. And, and uh, But that sort of, um, that gives you an idea, the sort of person that it, it's, it's, it's could be, 
people in just in other spheres, I think, um, which you, you get into a bubble. One of the dangers of, of a vertical and particularly in B2B is that you get into a sort of into a, a sport business bubble and it's breaking out of that, which is refreshing both for me and for, I think for the audience. Yeah. And, and the same applies to our own podcast. I mean, it's probably a trap we've fallen guilty of, or more specifically, I've fallen guilty of, you know, it's quite often CMOs or VPs of marketing. Sometimes quite interesting to hear the perspective of salesperson on the whole matter. Um, there's obviously two sides to every story. And like you say, if you're only ever hearing one side of things, well, it's not that much of a debate, is it? <laughs> um, listen, Richard, thank you very much for joining me today. Um, where can people hear more about uh, Unofficial Partner or get a copy of The Captain Myth? So uh, Unofficial Partner, it's unofficialpartner.com and you'll see all the podcasts there. We've, we've done 255 of them. Put one out this morning with the godfather of sports law who has created the sort of uh, a whole genre of law on his own. Um, yeah, so on the website, everywhere, obviously, you get podcasts, Apple, uh, Google, Spotify, your favorite podcast app. We do a weekly newsletter, which is on a Thursday. And if you're interested in sport and the sport, the business of or the marketing of it, I would push you towards that. We've got, you know, there's a there's a lot of people that get to that on a on a Thursday and it goes out direct to your inbox. So that's probably where I'd I would go. But uh, um, and it's, you know, it's interesting and it's a it's a sort of very vibrant community and one of the questions we've got is what next how do you know what's how's it going to evolve and that's that's the question that's on mine and sean's uh, minds at the moment fantastic well richard thank you very much and thank you to our audience as well obviously for, for listening the whole way through um just a reminder that if you want to check out more of the b2b marketing podcast you just need to go to uh, www.b2bmarketing.net slash podcast or get it in all the usual places soundcloud spotify you know where to look um, so that's all from us and we'll see you again soon. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.